Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Does God predestine everyone who will ever be saved before they're even born? Blake affirms that not only does God choose whom he will save in eternity past, but he did so without regard to any conditions or qualities of what these people will do. Jacob denies, arguing that everyone has free will to choose God or reject him. God does predestine, but in a general rather than specific way. He also predestines unconditionally for certain roles within the history of redemption. Which side do you think is correct? Here is episode 139, Calvinism versus Arminianism 3, Unconditional Election. Today we're talking about unconditional election, and this topic is the second of the five points of TULIP, of of five-point Calvinism, and it's really the heart of the whole system, I would say, because everything really centers on the idea of election. Uh, Just to define quickly what we're talking about, we're not talking about politics and voting. We're talking about God making choices about people's salvation, individuals or groups. And Blake, why don't you give us a thumbnail sketch or an opening statement on what it is Calvinism teaches on unconditional election? I really like this line from uh, John Piper on DesiringGod.org. I think it's a really good summary statement that's easy to digest. So he defines unconditional election as God's free choice before creation, not based upon foreseen faith, to which traitors he will grant faith and repentance, pardoning them and adopting them into his everlasting family of joy. So as you said, it's a a discussion about choice. Um, I would also add that election is not equal to salvation because it's something that happens before the person is saved. That's true, as far as I understand it, in both contexts, um, in the sense that God makes a choice before the foundation of the world as to which people will be saved. As far as I grasp it, the, the main debate is over whether that is upon the condition of God perceiving someone's faith and thereby choosing to save them, or it has nothing to do with the person's response and it's absolutely entirely on the sovereignty of God. All right, so Blake, you said that election can be seen in two ways. Either one, God's choosing is totally wrapped up in his sovereignty before the foundation of the world, or it could be based on foreseen faith in the future. That's what you're saying? Yeah, so those two views, you would historically have conditional election or the foreknowledge view um, or the Arminian position, or you have unconditional election, Calvinism, Augustinianism. And that comes from, again, that idea of God's choosing. But we do see God's choice throughout Scripture. And the word election shows up in certain translations, not all of them, but the concept is is a choice. Blake, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the relationship between election and salvation. You you just distinguish them. So what is... What is that relationship? Because I think a lot of us, when we perceive Calvinism, we, we collapse the two into one. So uh, how, how does that work? Salvation is the actual process of regeneration, saving faith, 
then you have sanctification, justification, and ultimately glorification. Like in Romans 8, I believe, that whole line, those whom he called, he did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. So the idea of election is simply having to do, and, and it's very, very laser-focused on God's choosing of whom he will save. So like the president-elect isn't the president until the inauguration. So in the case of God's elect, they aren't saved until in the span of their life when God chooses the time, the means of their salvation and regeneration. So that distinction of election is about God choosing who's going to be saved, but that doesn't mean that from the moment they're born, they're saved. They still become saved in the course of their lifetime. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Could you talk about how that process works? How do you believe that God makes those decisions? Mm -hmm. That's a big discussion, and I... I don't want to be the person who just goes to Romans 9, because I think that there's a lot of other passages that talk about this. But in the interest of discussion and making it palatable, I think I'll just stick in Romans 9 for now, just because it's simple. But I do preface that by saying there are other passages related to this, and many of them, but it's just not conducive to, to dialogue. So I also wanted to mention Romans 10, 20, uh, in which Paul quotes from Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So that's like a very, very short little clippy sentiment about this idea of God is showing himself even to those that aren't pursuing him. Last week we talked about Romans 3, uh, none seeks after God, no, not even one. And so that through, that, that starting point comes to the to necessitate in the Calvinistic system unconditional election. Uh, on this uh, statement, Blake, is this this person speaking or is this God speaking? I have been found by those who did not seek me. It does look like that's God answering back to a prayer. So I have been found by those who did not seek me is God speaking and saying that even though they weren't searching for him, they found him. And this this indicates election. Well, and this, the following line of, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. In other words, that he's... Okay, yep. so using the second half to explain the first half. Yep. Thank you. And then the classic text of Romans 9, verse 10. Uh, this is talking about the children of God through Abraham. Isaac is traced through this lineage. And he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So that's kind of the, one of the, the strongest statements that I find throughout Scripture about this particular topic. All right, so just in your own words, explain then how you see the whole process working, and then we can get down to the supporting text and the nitty-gritty. So based upon this passage, I see that God, we already know God is not a respecter of persons from elsewhere in Scripture, but in this passage, it shows God choosing one of these twins over the other. I mean, these two are as similar as they can possibly be, and he makes a sovereign decision of saving one of them versus the other. And the passage is silent relatively on the idea of God doing it because of something they knew. In fact, if anything, it seems Paul is stating that God made the choice with no view to what they did. 
uh, or would do, because he talks, he emphasizes this line that seems a little bit odd otherwise in the passage to include, to take the time to say before they were born or had done anything good or evil, so that God's purpose or God's purpose according to his choice or according to election might stand. So then is your position that God chooses those who will become saved arbitrarily? Arbitrarily, I think, is the incorrect word. I would say he chooses based upon his sovereignty. And then later in the passage, which we'll get into, he says to Moses, I have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. That is, that God's divine initiative in salvation is to bring a people for his glory, uh, a remnant for his glory. And it might appear arbitrary, I guess, on the human side, except that this scheme already presupposes total depravity. So in that scheme, nobody's going to choose God to begin with because they don't want to choose God, they hate God, all the stuff we discussed before. So from that starting point, it necessitates unconditional election. When I was saying arbitrarily, I wasn't trying to be snarky or anything. I I, I was trying to use a word to describe what you were saying Mm -hmm. as far as it was not based on anything good or bad that they had done. So let me use a different word just right. to, again, I'm just trying to clarify your position. Yep. I'm not arguing against you at all. So God is picking ahead of time, not based on what the person is going to do. Yes. Okay. So that's, I don't know what word would fit that, but <laughs> it's unconditional with respect to what the person, who they are, you know, their race, their nationality, their height, intelligence, their propensity for virtue. I mean, it's not conditioned on any of those factors of the person. It's conditioned on God's seemingly impenetrable sovereign will. Is that a fair summary? Or I think, yeah, I mean, it, to say it's, it's not conditioned upon human response either, I would add that. Where, okay. where the conditional election view, as I understand it, is that God does still do his electing, but that it is decided on the condition or the basis of seeing who will respond to the gospel and then he chooses those people, but I could be right. mistaken on that. And one last thing, on your position, you presuppose divine exhaustive foreknowledge. Is that fair? Yes, but I would put it underneath the heading of sovereignty. I would say he already knows everything that's going to happen because he's already decreed from eternity past what's going to happen. So by extension, he, he has foreknowledge. Right. I mean, you can't, you can't pick people ahead of time if you don't know right. the future, right? Right. Okay. Uh, Jacob, give us your take on this whole subject of election and what your uh, understanding is. Yeah, so I would agree with Blake in saying that election, uh, there are different ways to look at election. It doesn't always have to be uh, conjoined with salvation. For example, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, some other important people in the Bible, Paul, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these people were chosen unconditionally to carry out uh, a ministry to further the the, the plan of God and his uh, redemptive plan of salvation. So election does not always necessitate salvation. However, in today's discussion, we are talking about salvation and we're looking at how how does God choose that and what does it mean that God chooses for salvation. So Blake has already hit on two points of how this can be taken. It could be taken uh, to be understood as the, the Calvinistic way that God has chosen uh, those whom he, uh, individuals uh, from eternity past. And then one Arminian way of looking at it is that God foresees in the future who will believe and then decides to 
choose them based off what he sees in the in the future. Uh, but there, there's a third way of looking at it, and that election is not individual, uh, and it's not unconditional, but rather election is corporate, and it's based on a condition. And so that's that's the view that I'll take right now is that election is corporate, not individual, and that it's conditional, not unconditional. For so, for example, uh, in Ephesians one four. Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So it says, the God he chose us. Now, this is a, an important nuance. It doesn't say that he, uh, that he chose us to be in him, to be in Jesus, but it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus is the one chosen by God. And when people unite themselves with Jesus— uh, when they associate with Jesus, uh, because Jesus is chosen, you and I become chosen as well because of our association with Jesus. And so, in that sense, uh, Jesus is the head, <clears throat> and individuals who uh, can join with him are chosen by association and identification. Uh, in First Thessalonians 1.4, Paul says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, that word for choice is the word for elect, which just means choice, and of you there is in the plural. It's not uh, his choice of you individually, but it's his choice of you as a community, as as the body of Christ. When we see the elect or the chosen spoken of uh, in the New Testament, the terminology used is that of corporate identity, not individualism. For example, uh, in Ephesians 4.12, and this shows up other places in the New Testament, but the body of Christ. Uh, in Revelation 19.7, uh, the church the elect, the chosen, are described as a bride of Christ. Election or choosing is is corporate, and that because Jesus is chosen, we are too. Now, it is conditional in the sense that uh, even though the body is elected, Jesus is elected, the individual members who constitute the body, it is conditional. Their being in, in the body uh, is conditional. In Colossians 1, 22 and 23, it says, yet has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, speaking of Jesus, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And so in one sense, the things that God has ordained to come to pass for the body of Christ, for for Jesus and all those who believe in him, that will not change. But as to the individual members who make up that body. It is conditional based on if you remain in the faith. That's where I'm coming at. All right. So what I heard you say is that you distinguish between the election that God brings about to accomplish his purposes in the world, not necessarily salvation, but the choosing of Abraham, for example, and the choosing of Ruth in the Bible for her to become part of the people of Israel so that eventually the Christ could be born and all this. So that you would accept as individual election. Yes, and also unconditional because God, for whatever reason to him, was, was uh, chose them. So I'm not, I'm not against unconditional election because there are some cases of that, but we have to define what does that mean. And in terms of salvation, I would argue that that is not the case. For salvation, you're going with a corporate view. Yeah, that is okay. conditional. On the individual level. <laughs> okay, so just before uh, we come back to Blake here, what I hear 
just summarizing a bit, it seems like there are three main views here. One is the Calvinist position, which is unconditional election. God is choosing people not based on what their response is going to be to be saved, and he's using his foreknowledge in some way to do that, at least to know that that person exists (laughs) in the future. The uh, second position is conditional election, where God looks into the future and sees how people would respond and then chooses those who would respond, and that's more of a traditional Arminian point of view. And then we have what Jacob is rolling out here, which is a corporate election perspective that God sees the future of what he wants his corporate church to be, his people to be, and that's what he predestines any who are in Christ to become. So is that fair, those three? We don't have the, that middle point of view here represented today. No, no. So those those last two you you uh, you talked about are within the Arminian camp. Some, okay. Yeah. All right. So I'd be taking the latter of the two. All right, Blake. So where do we go from here? You want to offer some supporting, some more supporting evidence for your position? Yeah. I wanted to respond to Jacob's point in Ephesians 1. Because, as I think we both know, Paul's writing to believers there, so he's writing to God's elect, in a sense. You know, whether you're talking about it from a Calvinistic or uh, or from your point of view as well, as they are the people of God. This is in in one three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I I grant that that is the blessing comes through the head of the body, even as He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And he goes on about the inheritance and how we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, all things according to the counsel of his will. So I I see a lot of uh, praise of God in in his glory and his sovereignty here. God is doing these things according to his own counsel. But I don't think that we can escape that language of even as he chose us in him. I think that the reason for the us is simply because he's writing to the church group. He's not writing to one individual, even as he chose you or even as he chose me. And he uses this phrase multiple times. He chose us in him. In him we we have redemption. So yes, everything is absolutely through Christ. Christ's sacrifice, his death, resurrection, ascension is what makes this process possible to begin with. Uh, in verse 5, it says, he, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, I do want to dwell on that for a moment, because adoption as sons does, to me, imply at least uh, a specific adoption. It's not a vague, you know, you go to an adoption center, you don't go through the whole process and not know which kid you're going to get. His analogy there, and again, we are anthropomorphizing God a little bit there, so I don't want to drag the analogy too far, but I do think that the flavor of the passage is referring to individuals, not a collective group. I mean, Paul uses uh, plural pronouns. He doesn't use individual language. That's correct, because he is writing to a group of elect people. Yeah. It's like the community. 
is made up of elect people, though, I would yeah, say. But, yeah, it's like the, the community is chosen, but as to the individual, because, I mean, that's what we saw in Colossians 1. On the individual level of the community, it's conditional, if you remain in the faith. I would add that there's a distinction to be made between the visible body, you know, that there's, there's people who come to a church gathering who are not saved people. Even if they act it, I mean, we, we see this in our contemporary evangelical scene a lot. We see people who are in the visible body of the church, or I, I can't remember who, who made that distinction, but you have the, the visible and the invisible church. And you see that throughout the scripture of this idea of the wheat and the tares are coming up together. Yeah. So the decision is don't cut out the tares now because you might cut down the wheat and you can't tell the difference right now. He's going to wait till the judgment to separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. But I think there's an implication that there are people in the body. I mean, you can see Judas, who was one of the 12, and said he knew from the beginning that one of them was going to betray him. So Judas, or these people that don't believe or are not elect, do exist within the visible church. But the body of Christ, the invisible church, transcends denominations, transcends races, nationalities, all that stuff. Yeah. So is is that what you're taking Ephesians 1 as referring to? The invisible church? I think he's talking to, he, he's speaking specifically to the people that God has chosen in Christ, the ones who he chose for adoption as sons. Presumably there would be people in Ephesus who are hearing this that are not in that category. I would agree with that, and I, and, and I say that to account for what you talk about in Colossians, if you persevere in the faith, which is also a, a true statement, and we'll get to that in the perseverance aspect of uh, uh, the tulip acrostic, but... All right, so before you jump in, Jacob, let's just look down at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. On the one side, Blake is saying the us there is us individuals. God predestined us individually in eternity past. And Jacob's saying us there is the church in, in general. Yeah. And so exegetically, is there a way to crack this nut, or is it just like I have this one point of view and you have that point of view? Because I, I, reading this, I could see either one of those being compatible with this verse. Usually when, when you're looking at a text and there's two ways that it could go, such as the case is here, uh, it's helpful to go and look at other passages and see if they shed light on on the one in question. So. I'm sure we're going to go do that. I would like to mention that um, the adoption as sons, you said that that has a very specific descriptor in mind. Uh, In Romans 8, uh, Paul speaks about the adoption uh, of sons, but he speaks about it in in an eschatological reality. That is, when we are glorified, we'll be adopted as sons. So adoption of sons doesn't always necessitate the initial conversion of being saved, but can also speak about uh, in the future being glorified when Jesus returns. And... I agree with you that there are people in the church who are not really of the church. But in Colossians 1, uh, that statement does not apply to somebody who is not in the faith. How can they remain in the faith if they're not in it to begin with? Those are good points. I think that the warning stands um, as like, we, you know, we haven't even touched on like Hebrews 6 or some of the crazier uh, (laughs) intense language that shows up in the Bible. We had this discussion the other day, like you have this juxtaposition of legalism where people think they're saved by obeying the law perfectly and you know becoming this whole Christian perfectionism. But the opposite of legalism is your antinomianism, which is what Calvinism is usually accused of getting in bed with, though most right, faithful Calvinists if, don't if agree some, with that. If somebody's chosen and they can't lose their salvation, then they can live however they want. 
and Calvinists reject that wholesale because antinomianism has no place in biblical scholarship nor in the Christian life. That is the idea that, as you stated, I'm, I'm chosen, therefore I can do whatever I want, um, because how do we know that we're chosen? We prove our election or we make our, our election sure through obedience to Christ. But that, that comes into a whole bigger discussion about the change of heart and the fact that now that we're regenerate, we can desire God, and indeed we do desire God, though we don't do so perfectly this side of eternity. Um, so that is to say that if somebody is stumbling and falling and they're part of the church, we should do everything we can to admonish and encourage that person to come back into the faith. Um, we don't say, well, you're baptized or you're this, you're that, so you're good. Yeah. Uh, that's, that is not what is being asserted, though there are people uh, or the hyper-Calvinists who might take it to that extreme, but they are largely rejected within Calvinist or Augustinian theology. Well, let's uh, let's get back to unconditional election because we were just getting into perseverance there, yeah. and that's <laughs> not really our topic. Uh, also, I'd like to say, uh, just to hit on the point before about figuring out what's going on in Ephesians 1, another way that we can try to figure out whether it's individuals or the corporate body that's being talked about is to see if the New Testament elsewhere speaks of the election of individuals as opposed to a corporate body, or, or, or maybe both, but all there has to be is one example of an individual being elected. And so I know Romans 9 is going to be brought up. That's another measuring stick that we can use to figure out what's going on in Ephesians 1. If we really spent a lot of time sitting through Romans verse by verse, going line by line, we can exegete and let the passage exclaim itself. But I'd rather do that in, uh, in Romans 9 than in Ephesians 1 and just spend the time there. Okay, let's do it. Just uh, while you guys are on your way there, as far as I understand it, Blake, you're saying that Romans 9 indicates that God chooses people ahead of time, not based on their response. And and Jacob, your position is that you essentially agree with that, but you're saying it's not for salvation, it's for history of redemption? Yeah, unconditional election is is not in conjunction with salvation. All right. If Blake then could show that salvation is in view in Romans 9, you'd have to give another account of it yes okay go ahead Blake. all right so i just want to start and just see what paul is saying in the flow of the passage here and i will actually start back in romans 8 if you go into 31 which i won't go that far but it says if god is for us who can be against us he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who can bring a charge against god's elect it is god who justifies and he goes through this whole thing And then in 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I do think right before this passage... He is talking about salvation, because if we even back up a little bit further, uh, it talks about those he foreknew, he predestined, and conformed to the image of his Son, in order that uh, he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. So that's this idea of the, the chain of salvation, this idea of you go from God's calling to his justifying to his glorification. So glorification being ultimate redemptive salvation, uh, resurrection bodily resurrection in this kingdom. If we keep backing it up, I keep seeing these discussions that are speaking about salvation. So that's before Romans 9, but obviously it's all one letter. It wasn't broken up when Paul wrote it. 
So after that, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He says in Romans 9, 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Uh, just a really brief note on that. He doesn't say I wish. He says I could wish. It's Because obviously that's not actually possible. But he's making this emphatic statement as strongly as he possibly can about the sorrow that he has for those of Israel who are not saved. And he says, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving, the law, the worship, the promises. So he's recounting Israel's history there. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who's God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then he goes into verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So I think this verse 6 is an interesting point here because he's saying, he's saying the word of God hasn't failed. Even though God made this promise to Abraham that through your descendants, this and that, and yada, yada, all these promises in Genesis. And here Paul is lamenting the state of national Israel, the chosen people of God as a corporate body. And he's saying not everyone in that corporate body is saved. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. And then he makes the point, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This is going back to the point you made earlier about mm-hmm. the church invisible <clears throat> versus the uh, local congregation. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so. So he talks about that case of, you know, where Abraham had that funny business with Ishmael and went and tried to do his own thing. And God said, no, this is the way it's going to be. And he does this miraculous birth with Sarah. For the record, it was Sarah's idea. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Not that Abraham resisted. Yeah, I was going to say, he he had a a part in that. (laughs) I guess I could do that, honey. (laughs) And then it says, and not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election or God's purpose according to his choice might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And so to me, I think that the flavor of the passage is definitely concerned with salvation. It's definitely concerned with God's sovereign choice. And it's also definitely concerned with individuals, not corporate. I I think that the whole beginning of the passage rejects the idea that it's a corporate, that God's choosing corporate Israel because the whole thing starts out with, he's saying, I could wish, using this emphatic language, that I could be accursed so that corporate Israel or my, you know, the, the body of Israel could be saved. And then he comes into this verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Can we pause there? Yep. Uh, just looking at that first 13 verses there, Jacob, what would you like to respond with? Well, I agree with Blake's assessment that Paul is speaking to, to uh, national Israel and he's saying, and this is a theme we see a lot in the New Testament, just because you are a 
ethnic Jew, just because you are a descendant of Abraham does not automatically make you saved. But it's as Paul and others work out in the New Testament, it is faith in Christ that justifies you before God, not your nationality. I would argue that Paul is not discussing individual election to salvation in this chapter, but rather he's speaking to God's choice of individuals in Israel to be the line through which the Messiah would come because because Israel's heritage, not salvation, is in mind in this passage. Would you agree that Romans 8, the ending part where Blake started, that that is referring to salvation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's so a, you see a break between Romans 8 and Romans 9. Yeah, I would say he's switching gears here. Okay, so that's that was Blake's first point. So then uh, going through then, well, how would you respond to his statements about God choosing not all of Israel, but only those who are of the promise, only those who are elect within Israel? I wouldn't go as far to say that the individuals mentioned in chapter 9 are strictly corporate heads for nations. I believe there's some degree of that, because after all, there was a historical Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and such. And so God dealt with those individuals. My question to you, Blake, would be, why did God choose Isaac and why did God choose Jacob, the individuals? So glad you asked. Concisely, <laughs> briefly, because I'm uh, trying to make a point. I'm just going to read what Paul says to that question. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the answer is God chose Jacob over Esau because he has mercy on whom he has mercy. Okay, I disagree. I think the reason why God chose Isaac and chose Jacob was because when he chose Abraham, he had uh, a lot more sons than just Isaac. He had Ishmael, and I think he had some other sons as well. Oh, yeah, a whole bunch of others. Yeah, so like eight, eight or nine kids, but only one of those uh, was to be the carrier to the next generation for the, for the line of the Messiah. And then when, then when Isaac had children, he had twins. Uh, for whatever reason, God chose Jacob over Esau to continue that line. So I would say that God is not God did not choose the individuals Jacob and Isaac unto salvation, but he chose them unconditionally to further the line that the Messiah would come from, as opposed to choosing any of the other other children that Abraham and that Isaac had with um, Esau. And so when it says in verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, uh, that's taken from Malachi. And so this is a long, 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 long time after the individuals Jacob and Esau lived. And so right there in uh, Malachi, he's talking about the nation of Jacob, Israel, the nation of Esau, Edom. And I would say that this is what Paul has in mind as well, is there are individuals being spoken of, but they also represent nations. And so in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll say that's not on the individual level, but on the corporate level, because God didn't just choose anybody in Israel, but he specifically chose individuals, which Paul shows. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. Well, can I um, read that out, that Malachi? I'd like to hear Blake's response to this, because I think this is a common objection to the individual reading of Romans 9. It says in Malachi 1, 2, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, 
but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And, And it goes on from there. So this is a clear, in Malachi at least, a clear place where these patriarchal names signify nations that are hundreds of years after these patriarchs have have long been dead. We see in verse 2, it switches from Esau, verse 2 and 3, to verse 4, to Edom. Mm -hmm. And Edom is the name, of course, of the nation taken from the word for red. You know, he was known for Mm -hmm. when he was born, he came out red or something. I don't know. But uh, (laughs) if Paul's quoting Malachi, is it fair to say that that brings in a corporate flavor to the whole Romans 9 or not? What do you think? I think that's an interesting point, and I do concede that Malachi is speaking to the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom, although I will think it's, it, it is still interesting that the discussion does begin with the discussion of the individual brothers and then switches to Edom, and that the discussion does switch in Malachi. It does begin with the brothers, because it doesn't say, Israel have I loved, Edom have I hated. He does specifically reference the individuals. But I would also add that... As I mentioned, I think last time in, in, I believe it was Romans 3, Paul is, by apostolic authority and by the inspiration of God, writing this letter to the Romans. Just as in other sections of the New Testament, they bring things from the Old Testament and give new light to them. And so they may borrow something that has a different context than what they're immediately writing to, but they use that and give us new information about it or enlighten the previous understanding. So... Jesus does this a lot in uh, the Gospels where he'll say, you know, you've heard it said this, and then he will bring in new information. Or you see that in Acts with the sermon, you know, as it was prophesied here and here, but this is what these things mean. Yeah. So, so you're, what you're saying is you have to privilege the New Testament context over the Old Testament context and allow for the New Testament to make its own point and not always just like woodenly interpret all quotes as as being what they were originally. I would say that because I think that if we do that, I think we're going to be in danger of doing what the Pharisees and some of the other people did uh, at the time because they studied the law, they studied the scriptures, they knew it better than most of us have any clue about our Bibles and yet they were so wrong about so many things. Um, Not saying this is one of those things, but I'm saying I think that we do need to let it speak for itself in the New Testament. Jacob? Yeah, so I would well, first of all, I just want to say, I'm sorry if I was snarky before when I you said make good. your... Okay, I don't... Wait, when you said what? When I said hurry up and make your point, be concise, <laughs> I was just... I just didn't want to get sidetracked and lose my point. I'm getting so, punchy here. apologize for that. The Old Testament context does not always mean what it means in the New Testament because we have Jesus, there's a new covenant, uh, the veil has been lifted, so we see things in a brighter light. But I would say in, in, in the context of Romans 9 that Paul is speaking about, has a corporate view in mind. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. And, and, and the question is, really in verse 6, his point is, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, because from Israel was supposed to come this Messiah, and this Messiah would rule the world, evil would be vindicated, everything would be subjected to God and his Christ. But then Jesus comes and his own people reject him. And so where does that leave the majority of the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation that Israel is God's elect. I mean, nobody disagrees with that. No, no, no. Yeah. Not necessarily for salvation, but 
he did choose them yeah. out of all the nations mm-hmm. to establish a covenant with and to work with all these many centuries. Yeah. He speaks about, even though Abraham had a lot of children, he chose Isaac. Even though Isaac had two, two children, God chose Jacob as to continue the line to the Messiah. I will make a point about that. If that's specifically what he's addressing, why doesn't he talk about the one of the, the, one of the 12 of Jacob's sons that was chosen? I don't know. Because I All think, we have is what's written. I, I, and I agree with you there, but I think if that is the point that he's making, it would make sense to then go in and say, and then I chose this one out not, of the 12. Not necessarily because he has the patriarchs in mind. Like when you think of Israel, you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. But you also David. said specifically that he is, you, you, you're asserting that he's talking about the Christ line and... If that's the case, then it would make sense to follow through as to why uh, one of the 12 was chosen for the Christ to come through and not over a different one. I mean, especially if we're talking about, you know, God electing a people or, or a specific lineage, that's even more bold a statement than to say Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. Well, let's let's press on because there's more of Romans 9 to, to work through. and We've only got about <laughs> 10 more minutes okay. left. Oh, yeah. Man. Time flies when you're talking predestination. Like we had a choice, Blake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, little Calvinist joke there. Yeah. Let's pick it up where you left off there, Blake, All and right. uh, press on. This statement in, in 14, Paul's anticipating an opposition to whatever point he's making, whether he's saying it's, it's nations or it's lineage, or if he's talking about individual salvation, as I'm asserting. And his question is, his rhetorical question is, is there injustice on God's part? And ESV says, by no means. Some of the other translations say, God forbid, or may it never be. So he's, he's saying that's a ridiculous assertion. So whatever, whatever his point is, if our conclusion is that God is unfair or unjust, then we're wrong. We're wrong, <laughs> is basically yeah. Paul's point there. So, but anyways, that's a side note. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I don't know what that would possibly have to do with nations or with the Christ line, because he's specifically speaking about will or exertion, which are things usually referenced, human will, human exertion, in relation to salvation and sanctification. And as I said, I, I don't think that you can separate nine and eight. I think he's talking about one continuous argument, but I'll press on, and, and I'll let you respond to all that. I just wanted to make that note, because I, I think that verse 16 totally obliterates any notion that that it's our decision or it's our will or it's our effort that's going to get but it's totally on god who has mercy and then verse 17 for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very purpose i have raised you up that i might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills now that's a really tough statement because the one we like, God having mercy, but God hardening people. I don't I, like. I, I don't. I. I'm even a little uncomfortable by the implications of that. But again, I think he's a, he's asserting the freedom of the potter. And as we keep going into verse 19, he says, "You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will?" Now, I don't know about you. Uh, when I was an Arminian, nobody ever asked me that about my position of salvation. Not once did someone say, well, how can God find fault? Because he's still, uh, who can resist his will? Because that's just the framework of, the, of the, the soteriology is such that God's off the hook for any sort of injustice. Like there, there's not a accusation of injustice in that argument because, well, God's made it available for everybody. 
and you know it's it's up to them to choose and so of course god's not but that's not what paul says he goes on to say just to clarify you don't think this is talking about pharaoh still i still think oh i think he's definitely talking about pharaoh but he's using pharaoh as a point about god's sovereign mercy and sovereign will for salvation for or reprobation the other you know other, election or yeah, reprobation for, okay. right all right, keep going. Thanks. And he says, yep, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? A little, little Job uh, styled here. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? For what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he has this quote from Hosea about those, I will call those who were not my people, my people. This is dealing with Israel, but he just prefaced that there by saying it's not just Jews but also Gentiles. So he is in this context expanding now yeah. that God's elect come not only from national Israel but also from the rest of the nations. Jacob? Uh, in verse 15 I love mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the mercy of God. And so we can't, we can't control or dictate whom God is going to have mercy on or whom, whom he is not. And so within Israel, there were a lot of Jews, the nation, but God only chose a select group unconditionally to be the heritage line uh, of Jesus. In verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you. And he speaks about Pharaoh and his, and his heart being hardened. Paul's using the example of Pharaoh to speak about national Israel they were given the promises, as we read in verse 5, they were given all these privileges, but they still ended up rejecting their Messiah. And so God is treating them as such. And so, and so then in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. I would, I would say that's speaking to the Jewish people. But Pharaoh's definitely not Jewish, though. No, absolutely not. Well, it's an um, example. Let's go back to a point that you keep bringing up, Jacob, which is this whole Christline business. Why are you so much like a dog on a bone with that hermeneutic for this chapter? Is there something in here that, that points to that, or is this just something that you're well, bringing in? The argument that Paul is making is saying, just because you are an ethnic Jew does not automatically mean you are saved. It does not automatically mean you receive salvation by default. And we can all agree on that. Yes, okay. but it is only by faith in Christ. The response would be, well, how can that be? Has God's word failed and whatnot? And Paul says, absolutely not. If you think of Israel, if you're a Jew, there's a, there's a broad category. I'm Jewish, I'm in. But Paul's saying, well, really, it's being justified by faith in Christ, which is much narrower of a view. And he says, look, this narrow, this narrow way of God's salvation, it even happened within Israel's own history, with Abraham. With, even though he had a lot of children, he chose one. Uh, Isaac, he had two sons, twins. He chose one. And so... Chose one unto salvation or... No, chose one to continue the lines of the Messiah. God God doesn't work just on the big scale, but he works on an individual scale. He works on a more narrow uh, way. So just, just because you're an ethnic Jew does not mean you're in, but it's faith in Christ. And we can even see this narrow plan even within Israel's history. So It's almost like the word vocation. 
uh, which of course Luther really brought that to the fore. It's the idea of looking at your your work as a calling. Okay, so these are like callings that God has on Israelites to move forward his history of redemption. I think there's yeah. more to it than just the line of Christ, personally, because there's a lot There's a lot more he does than well, yeah, just I mean, keep that one... It ultimately led to the salvation of the world. I wouldn't say it's just that either. And yeah. like, I'm not saying individuals are not being spoken of here. Isaac and Jacob were individuals. But if you, re- if you go back and read in Genesis... Did God appoint them to salvation? Is that what it says? Well, what does it mean to be the chosen people of God? So Elijah goes out and he's he's all depressed, as the prophets often were, by by the news that they were carried by what was going on to national Israel. Um, in that they've all you know all the all of the children of promise seem to have turned away, but God preserved a remnant of His people. Like I have these people here that I've preserved for you. Agree. Just because you're national Israel doesn't make you saved as that's Paul's whole thrust here at the start. But I do believe the passage is addressing salvation, especially given the context following off of the heels of Romans 8. I don't think that you can take a break from, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And then he goes into this thing about, so he's starting about separation. Nothing can separate us. And then he's talking about how his brethren are separated from the promise. And he would wish himself separate or could wish himself separate for their sake so he's starting out talking about salvation here to to christians and then he laments the state of his fellow jews before going into this statement about the way that god makes decisions and the way that god calls people let me interject something here you asked the question blake what does it mean to be god's chosen people and i imagine if you ask that question to a jew today mm-hmm. they would be less likely to frame it in terms of salvation and eschatology, and much more likely to frame it in terms of covenant, and that it means that they have the commandments, they have Torah, they are the people God has chosen to live a certain way and to be in a certain relationship with Him along those lines. Now, you could rebut that and come back and say, well, where do we get this whole obsession on salvation from? Romans. You know, and the Apostle Paul. So And, and uh, the Gospels. <laughs> and, and the Gospels. So, I mean, it's more of a New Testament move mm-hmm. to be so focused on resurrection. I mean, there's yeah. a little resurrection in the Old Testament, but, but not that much. It's not, not much. really the yeah. main focus. Um, but uh, anyhow, Jacob, why don't you come back on... Um, you, you could come back on uh, Blake's contention that Romans 9 is salvific and uh, not, really, not merely focusing on the history of redemption uh, to bring us to Christ... Or you could get into this potter and the clay stuff in um, the 19 and tw- early 20s here. So salvation is in the backdrop because ultimately Christ brings salvation. I wouldn't totally divorce Romans 9 and, and, and salvation being spoken of, but that needs to be nuanced. Is it the salvation of uh, specific individuals unconditionally by God, or is it salvation that God has brought to us through Christ? And in verse... 20 and 21, we have this image of the potter and the clay. Uh, we see this Im- imagery used in the Old Testament of, of, of God being the potter, Israel being the clay. And it says that to make from the same lump, so there's one group, one vessel for honorable use and one for uh, a common or dishonorable use. And so that seems to fit in with his argument. 
uh, national Israel is the common use or dishonorable use of the lump. The honorable use of the clay is these individuals that God has chosen within Israel. In verse 22, it says, uh, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? This is just a side note, but if God has already uh, determined who he desires to be saved, it seems as though he wouldn't have to endure with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for uh, destruction. So it seems as though like this endurance language sounds as though, well, God, God wants them to, but for whatever reason, they're not, they're not coming to know him. I have a strong disagree there. Sorry, uh, not to cut you off. But, that was just uh, like a little side point. It's yeah, not yeah. really part of the... Just on that real, really quickly, we also see this endurance, a little bit of this patience or this endurance with Jesus about, about the cross. Like he endured it, despising the shame, but he was set. So like if there's endurance that that necessitates that the plan is somehow not going along. I don't see that God's enduring, even though he still has his overarching plan. And then the other thing is, this passage is talking about God can make out of this whatever he wants. He's not waiting on the clay to say, well, why did you make me this way? Or what did you, you know, why didn't you make me this? Or could you change me? Or I wanted, that's not what's in the passage. It says the potter could make out of the clay whatever he wants. The metaphor of the potter and the clay. The whole point of it is that God is in control. But we, we have to wrap it up. So can I get like a final statement from you and then a final statement from Blake? I know we've been sticking in Romans 9. And just like Blake said at the beginning, there's we could go to so many other passages in the Bible to discuss this topic. However, I just have one, one last question. In your system of thought, Blake, the whole process of salvation is wrapped up in God, correct? That's it's, correct. It's his sovereign choice. He chooses who he wants to choose, and he doesn't choose everybody. That's his choice and his just and his right, correct? That's correct. Okay, so I would, I would say that the New Testament indicates that God desires all people, not just those whom he chooses, but he desires all people. Now, there are a lot of verses that say this, but the most poignant one is in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of, of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All men, not just those whom he desires. I'm going to try and do a really, really quick exegesis of uh, 1 Timothy 2.4, and then I'll address the, the thrust of that question. Absolutely. On the surface, I would submit that just a quick reading of 3 and 4 says he desires all men or all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, and then he goes on about this, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, all the, and talks about the salvation thing. But we can't divorce verses 3 and 4 from verses 1 and 2. And in verse 1, he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, is he talking about all people in a global sense of people from every nation, which would kind of make sense? I, I would submit that makes sense, especially given Timothy's background. But is that what he's talking about? Or is he literally talking about that we as Christians need to pull out a phone book of all 6 billion people and go down and pray for every individual person? Or is he talking about all people in a corporate sense? And I think the text answers it because he then says, made for all people, for kings and all in high places that we may lead a quiet, a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, it's the same word all that's happening, all people. It's the same discussion here. I think if we're going to be fair and say that this is literally talking about numerically all, every single, I'm trying to think of the words to use, but numerically every single person, 
then the first one also has to talk about every single person. And I don't think that that's the thrust of the passage because then he goes to specify types of people and to the servants. And as we know, in the time of Paul's writings, there were very wicked rulers. And what he is calling them to do here is radical. He's saying, you're going to make prayers and supplications for all types of people, even these wicked rulers, and especially those people, you know, all all these types of people, because Mm -hmm. God desires all types of people to be saved. I just think that's the, the nature of that passage. I know that's a quick answer, and we could spend a whole three hours on on 1 Timothy 2.4. But to actually answer your question there, where you said, does God choose some to salvation and some to damnation, or election and reprobation are the two things, or it's described as double predestination, right? The idea that God predestines some to life, some to death, some to salvation, some to damnation. If you're going to be honest, you can't separate those two things. An honest Augustinian or Calvinist view has to address the fact that there is a reprobate, reprobative side. But there, in very, very short terms here, there's two ways we can think about that. We can look at it as a positive-positive or a symmetrical action where God is working positively, creating faith and working out salvation in his elect and positively acting and creating evil in the hearts of the reprobate, which... I don't see that in Scripture. I don't know anyone who asserts that view uh, with any sense of confidence because that would make God definitively the author of evil if he was actually actively creating evil in people's hearts. But if we look in Romans 1, he talks about the, the wickedness of people and what they were doing. And, and then in verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped Uh, and serve the creature rather than the the creator. For this reason, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he goes on about this whole list of things. So for me, I see this as a positive negative or asymmetrical view where God is positively creating faith in the heart of the elect and bringing them unto salvation. And the others, he merely passes over and leaves to what they were going to do anyways. And the elect, he saves from what they were going to do anyways. You know, we see that with Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If we look back in the record, the beginning of that passage says, God God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And by the end of the passage, it asserts that Pharaoh hardened his heart against Israel. So we see this idea of hardening. And again, there's active or passive, this discussion, you know, there's all these dichotomies in theology. Um, But the idea of active hardening, God creating evil in his heart, I don't think so. But what is Pharaoh but a ruler? And who has, you know, who who are the most evil people that have ever lived? Our world leaders like Hitler had unprecedented authority and power and sovereignty to do what he wanted to do. Uh, same with Stalin, same with Pharaoh. He was a world leader. And so when you remove the normal restraints, human nature, you know, that axiom, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. People in authority have less restraints upon them. And so all God has to do to harden Pharaoh's heart is remove the, whatever restraints he has placed upon him and upon his own evil and just let Pharaoh's heart harden himself. And so it can be said, as it is in, in uh, Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart, because the, the actual action of hardening was on Pharaoh's part. Mm. But God merely removed his hands from the situation and, allowed, and, and, and thereby hardens Pharaoh's heart. And, and it's a difficult doctrine, and obviously we, that's a whole other discussion that could be a two-hour thing. But at the end of the day, all sin, all fall short of the glory of God, all are deserving of punishment, and... On some, God has mercy, and the rest he executes justice. And if God was to punish everybody, he would be perfectly just in doing so. And all we could complain is, well, 
you're such a just judge for executing justice. All right. Well, so did you have a final statement, Jacob? Briefly? Uh, yeah, just briefly. I'm not going to hit on Romans, but uh, just that last point you made about First Timothy. Um, it doesn't say all types of men. It says men. And even if God chooses to let those whom he doesn't intervene with, let them go to their own ways, that's still a choice by God not to intervene. And he desires all to be saved. And so... There's definitely a lot more that we can discuss on this. And for those of you listening, there's a lot on the internet and there's a lot of literature written on this. So if, you, if you're curious and interested in more, uh, definitely look it up for yourselves and find out what you think. All right. Well, that's it for today. We have um, barely scratched the surface, really. I mean, we could have gone... We could have went much longer. We could have gone easily another hour or two. That's just the nature of this kind of material. However, we are planning on continuing this series and... We will get to the L next time. Dun, dun, dun. Limited atonement. And that will afford us another opportunity to consider that, that text that we were just looking at. As far as today goes, you, you both represented your positions well, and you were able to articulate them, and I appreciate your, your time and preparation in doing that. Thank you. Thank you. If you haven't already listened to previous episodes of this debate, we have an introduction and then one on total depravity. Next week, we'll be back on the subject of limited atonement. A number of people have dropped comments on restitutio.org for the last episode on total depravity. Too many, in fact, to read out here, but we've had quite a dialogue there on both sides of the issue. And if you weren't aware, we are doing a poll for each episode. As of this recording, the total depravity side won with seven votes against five votes for the idea that the fallen can have faith. What I'm going to do is close the poll each week when the new episode is released. So if you did not get a chance to vote for last week, it's closed now. But if you would like to vote on this week, please stop by at restitutio.org and find episode 139, Calvinism versus Arminianism 3, and vote on which side you think is more biblical and which is more correct. Now, obviously, these polls are informal, but they're, they're a way to gauge what you listeners are thinking and how you're interacting with the material. So I really... So I invite you to come on and have your voice be heard. Also, drop a comment. Let's keep this discussion going because each of these episodes is really just an introduction to the subject. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.